Hello, Let's Run Nation. Before we get started, quick sponsor plug. You want to know how Sarah Hall did so well at the London Marathon? Maybe it was her fueling. Sarah Hall uses UCAN, and it helped propel her to her surprising second place. Finish. You don't want to be dump bonking in races. You don't want to be fueling inefficiently. Go to UCAN.co. The link is in the show notes, and you can save 20% off your order with code Let's Run. Fuel like Sarah and learn how Sarah fuels at UCAN.co. Also on today's pod, we talk to Army track and field cross-country coach Mike Smith about America's race, the cool tri-meet between Army, Navy, and Air Force next week at West Point. And because of that, we're postponing till next week, part two of our talk with Matt Hart, the author of When It All Cost, Inside Nike Running and Its Culture of Deception, the Alberto Salazar book. In part two of our talk, he talks about the alleged attempted kiss of Kara Goucher and a lot more. That is available to Let's Run.com subscribers now. They have their own special podcast feed. Go to Let's Run.com slash subscribe to become a supporters club member today. Hello, everyone. It's Wednesday morning, November 4th, 2020. So we record this podcast, the famous Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. We don't quite know who's going to be the president of the United States. Looks like it might be Joe Biden. But if by the time you're listening to this, if we still don't know, just enjoy the podcast. No reason to stress out. Go for a run, listen to us, and have some fun. We've got a lot to talk about. The Super Shoes have ruined Japan's national championships. Molly Huddle has broken three American records. Galen Rupp has broken American record. Michael Norman may be dropping down to the 100. NCAA cross-country action is back. And the man that I have predicted as an Olympic lock has dominated the ACC championships. Rojo proven to be a genius yet again. Folks, this is Let's Run Like co-founder Robert Johnson. I'm joined, as always, by my twin brother, fellow co-founder Weldon Johnson, as well as Jonathan Galt. If you want to reach us, pick up the phone. Unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, you can call us. 844-538-7786-844-LET'S-RUN or email the show at pod at letsrun.com. Guys, how's everybody doing? Jonathan, I was a little worried about you this week. How are you feeling? About 10 p.m. on Tuesday night, I was not feeling great, Robert. I was panicking, sending panic texts to some of my friends who... Well, voted the same way as I did, let's put it that way. And, you know, we were all a little worried, but I woke up this morning feeling better. I checked the news. Uh, I'm I'm happy to do some arguing about track-related stuff today. I think our entire country, the entire world, has probably heard enough of the political arguments so far in 2020. So I'm excited to shoot down your, uh, you know, hot take of Yared Nagus being the next U.S. Olympian in the 1500. Good, good. But John, we, we got to talk a little politics. I am thrilled with the election results, folks. The big one has come through, resounding, no doubt whatsoever, the biggest vote of the night. Here in Maryland, we've legalized sports bank gambling. I cannot wait. I will not have to drive 25 minutes to the Pennsylvania border to bet from my smartphone on the side of a, you know, getting hit by an 18-wheeler. Very excited on that front. I have a question. Weldon, do you do you have control over the Let's Run funds that we can make sure Robert doesn't dip in there and bankrupt the company by betting some ridiculous Cowboys Super Bowl bet or something like that? Yes, John. Uh, the bank funds are secure. Robert has no access to any Let's Run.com funds. No worries there. All right. Paychecks uh, will I keep coming. Just want to make sure I keep getting paid. That's uh, That's all. 
I am a little tiny bit disappointed. I mean, folks, in this day and age of, of virtue signaling, I would like to get this out there. I'm a little bit disappointed that my woke candidate for the second straight election, I did vote for a woman to be president. She did not apparently win. A little disappointed. But um, other than that, you know, it's a good day, John. Yeah, real quick on the election. I, too, was worried about John last night. Eric, our web guy, about 10 o'clock, those betting odds were looking pretty grim. And then when I woke up today, I was like, okay, we're not going to have to give bereavement for John and Eric. Eric also had some money placed on Biden. He was very confident a couple of days ago. He's a data analytics guy. And I was like, not only is he going to be crushed here, but he's going to lose some money. But also, John, there's some troubling news out of Massachusetts that has me worried about your mental health. Is this correct? Masks are now mandated in Massachusetts outdoors at all times coming into effect on friday courtesy of governor charlie baker it's true well then and i'm not happy about it look i i am not an anti-masker i respect all this stuff like stopping the spread of disease i'm pretty fair i think and understanding on most of these topics but currently the united states the state of massachusetts policy is if you're outside and you can't social distance you have to wear a mask but a lot of times when I'm running, you know, I am able to social distance and I pull the mask down or I might not wear one if I'm in a secluded area. And now they're saying I have to do it at all times. Like even if there's no one within a, a mile of me, it's just, it's annoying. It's really inconvenient as a runner. And I know that's being a little selfish, selfish, but come on. I mean, is this legal? Like, I, I know the governors can sort of make, not make stuff up, but do stuff for sort of public health. But... Uh, I thought we're supposed to be somewhat about science. If you're not near someone, like, this is just nuts. Yeah, I'm still waiting for the scientific explanation of how this helps stop the spread or why it's, you know, why it's better than the policy that currently exists. With this specific aspect, there are other things that are introduced we don't need to get into, but... This is why I love Jonathan, because he's actually a, a, a rational person. He, he can disagree with this insane... When I saw this thread, I, I didn't think it was possibly true. I was like, there must be some sort of mistake. I mean, this is un-American, but no, um, it's true. And also, the reason, other reason why I love Jonathan is, instead of staying up to 2 or 3 in the morning last night for no reason, when he can just wake up and, you know, someone's been counting the votes while he's sleeping... John went to bed early because we had an interview to do before we recorded this podcast. Coming up at the end of the show is a fantastic interview with the Army's head track and field and cross-country coach, Mike Smith. They're putting on an amazing tri-meet, the Army, Navy, Air Force tri-meet on Memorial on Veterans Day next Wednesday. It's going to be live on ESPN+. Plus. It's going to be on the um, plane, the first sporting event on the plane, the historic plane, in a, almost 100 years. So that's coming up. But, John, kudos for being such a good employee. You realize the presidential election can wait. I need to be on top of my game for this interview. Yeah, I, I guess that's, you know, that's a little stretching the truth. Honestly, if I thought there was going to be a winner announced by 3 a.m., I probably would have stayed up to 3 a.m., but it seemed pretty clear that we weren't going to learn anything. So decided to get my beauty rest and come prepared for the interview. So, Robert, I want to ask you now, we had a few American records over the weekend, uh, Galen Rupp and Molly Huddle, and I think I've heard that you're anxious to tear down both of these records. So, which one would you like to tear down first? Well, I would like to tear down this Molly Huddle thing. I mean, I, I woke up on the weekend or at some point and went to Let's Run and saw Molly Huddle breaks three American records 
at once at 15k 10 mile and one hour is that right john and i was like oh my god like what how come we didn't hear about this why wasn't it promoted and then i sort of read tell me if i'm right on this her 15k split was 5007 i don't know what that even means 5350 for 10 miles and then she ran something like 17,000, I don't know, for something for an hour. None of that made any sense. But I, I looked up 10 miles in 53.50. And I'm like, what pace is that per mile? And, I mean, have you guys done the math? I have not. Please enlighten me. All my math is going towards the election. It's, I mean, this is officially Rojo's rant. I mean... This record's a joke. She ran 523 pace for 10 miles, and I guess she went for a little bit longer. That's 221 marathon pace. I'm supposed to be excited about this? This isn't even like half marathon American record pace, but because they put up some obscure split, we're, we're celebrating it. I mean, celebrating, it's relative. Like, I don't think Molly Huddle's... I talked to Molly Huddle about this a couple weeks ago, or so a couple months ago when she ran that track meet in Boston, and she was basically like the American one hour run record is like really, really easy. I can do it. I can get a hard effort in the track. I can get the record. You know, she knows this isn't the best that we can, the best possible result Molly Huddle could do if she was really training for it. But I think America, you know, in a pandemic without that many races on the schedule, runners need little things to check in with, to get back to fitness, to keep them motivated. I think this is fine. So yeah, I mean, she bro- so she broke the American record on the track for one hour, 17,930 meters uh, was what Molly Huddle ran. And then I didn't even know that the USATF had 15,000 meter and 10 mile track records. Like the 10 mile road record, that's something Kira D'Amato is actually going for that, I think in a few weeks on the roads. And that's actually like kind of legit. Whereas a 10 mile, US 10 mile track race, when, how many 10 mile track races have there even been in the last like, 25 years i just think that shouldn't even be a record but yeah i don't think i think molly huddle if you asked her the same she'd be like look it's it's an easy record but you know it was there for the taking she took it okay let's talk about the second disappointing performance of the week this one came from galen rob he raced seguro osako in the made up half marathon in oregon that was put on by the eugene marathon people i mean i'm glad they put this race on but it's a little interesting. It kind of came on last minute. We, we had like the day before the race that there was going to be a race. And then we found out later, a few hours later, it was going to be actually be the next day. Right, John? And then Kim Go or somebody had an article and Pete Julian wouldn't call it an American record attempt. But he said that that uh, Rupp could run near an hour and so could Osako. And if you look at the math, those are right near the Japanese and American record time. So it clearly was an American record attempt, but neither one gets it. Rupp runs... 60-22, and Segura Soccer runs 61-15. So to me, I don't know. We Rupp did a post-race interview. He says he feels good. He's pushing off much better on whichever leg had the surgery. But I don't know. Call me unimpressed. Uh, 60-22, I don't think is very that great in the, in the age of the super shoes. Adding a minute. I think it's... I think it's fine. It's not, I, I mean, Rupp, Rupp said he was a little disappointed by the time. And I think, you know, I see Rupp's going for a half marathon. This is his only race of the fall, and he's got the alpha flies. I kind of, going in, I thought he would break the American record by Ryan Hall, and, which is 59.43. And he didn't do it. He wasn't that close. He did get the, he got an American record. He got the US 10 mile record, um, which formerly belonged to Greg Meyer, 46.13 from 1983. 
Rupp ran 45.54, though there's an asterisk attached there because the 10 mile, you know, it's not very, it's not run very often. Ryan Hall actually came through faster when he ran his American record in the half marathon. He came through in 45.33, but according to David Monty, that mark could not be ratified because there was no official timekeeping at that point. There wasn't a certified 10 mile split. So, so what was Rupp's time here? Rupp was 45.54 and Hall was 45.33. But Rupp will get the record. So, I don't know. I think 60-22, I look at it. That's not a disaster. I'm not blown away. I think it's all right for a check mark. But if this was really a record attempt, which they're not framing it that way, but if that's what it was, obviously he came up well short. But let's think about these splits for a minute. Doesn't it not make sense to me? So he's only 21 seconds off the mark at 10 miles. But at the finish line, he's, he's 39 seconds off Hall's time. Well, there's another three miles. If he slowed down a little bit, and you're obviously going to lose pace if you're behind the pace, and then you fall further behind the pace, it's not really that crazy. Yeah, Rupp's... I mean, Hall was flying at the end of his, doing great, and then Rupp went out hard, tried to get the record, and then faded a bit at the end. I mean, he loses five seconds a mile the last three miles. That's perfectly reasonable. Can we also talk here, Galen Rupp, he... He's famous for sort of these technological advancements or little things they would use in the Salazar era. And I start seeing this race isn't streamed. Apparently the, you know, the cell reception or whatever, it's, it's very bad out when they were doing it. So that's why they couldn't get a stream. But I start seeing pictures of on social media during the race. I see Galen Rupp wearing what looks like eye black for an NFL quarterback. And I'm just like, classic Rupp. You know, he's always given us something to talk about here. He later said that he... That he was wearing these strips under his eyes, black strips, to help him open his airways better and help him breathe better. But what do we, what do we make of the latest, you know, technological uh, t- trick here by Rupp? When I saw this, the first thing I thought was, "Wow, Alberto Salazar still is coaching, and Mike Smith is just a, a frontman, right?" I mean, did anyone else think that? I was kind of kidding, but uh, or Alberto's sort of legacy on Rupp, his impression on Rupp is still there. I mean, that sounds like a Salazar thing. I think I agree, Robert. I think it's one of the two. It's either I, you know, I don't think Alberto's still coaching Rupp. I think it's Mike Smith, but they've made that quite clear. But it's interesting. I'd love to know where he got the suggestion for it, and maybe, like you said, that is his lasting imprint. Is now Galen is looking for any sort of advantage, and obviously there's nothing illegal about these things. But he's looking for anything that could sort of give him an edge. He's said that, you know, in the post-race interview in the press conference, he said he's always looking for something like that that can help shave off a couple seconds and. He thought it helped. How did it? We don't really know. Has anyone seen these eye black things before? I mean, I've never even seen them. I guess I'm not a competitive athlete anymore. But first thing that came to my mind is, yeah, is he still in touch with Alberto? And also, so we got two questions. Is he still in touch with Alberto? And is Alberto Salazar listening to this podcast right now? Well, the second one, I don't think so. The first one, I asked, I asked Ruff about this in Chicago last year. He didn't give an answer. And... It, just to remind you, people, it's le- it's not illegal for Salazar to be in contact with Rupp. It's just he can't coach him. So, I hope that he's in touch with Salazar. This is like a lifelong fr- guy friend who's had a huge impact in his life. So I, I personally hope that he is. Um, in, in terms of the coaching, I, I was kind of saying that in tongue-in-cheek, but unfortunately we don't know the answer. But they did do a post-race interview. T- Rupp talked to Chris Chavez, but... For some reason, Chris decided not to ask the obvious question of, hey, your lifelong coach has been banned. What's it like to have a new coach 
you know, have you seen Alberto or something like that? I don't know if that was part of the agreement not to talk about that. It seemed weird to me that you wouldn't ask that most obvious questions of in the post-race interview. But um, Robert, it was a post-race press conference, virtual press conference. You're kind of limited in some of the questions you can ask. It's not like it's a one-on-one. So it was. It, it was, was like a one. It was like a one-on-one for like six, seven, eight minutes. It, <laughs> I listened to it. And he put it up as a podcast himself. He said those were so, his questions. Maybe he put it. Maybe he separated out his questions. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's the American record talk. What about? Should we go to NCAA cross country here? We did have a few meets. We had the Big Twelve. We had the ACC. We had the SEC. I think Robert's most excited about the ACC cross country meet. Do we want to talk about that for a little bit? Well, let's first let's go to the Big Twelve men. Big the biggest matchup I think between top ranked teams was Iowa State men, Oklahoma State men. They ended up in a dead heat, tied, and then Oklahoma State wins the tiebreaker, so they're the Big Twelve champions. But can we change the way the NCAA does the tiebreakers? Iowa State wins at number six. The tiebreaker should be the sixth man. I hate this. What they do, for those of you who don't know, you know, international viewers, five people score at NCAA cross country. And then if there's a tie, you don't go look at the sixth or seventh runner. What they do is they figure out did number who's number one beating who's number one, who's number two beat number who's number two, who's number three beat number three for the top five. And if whichever team is winning three to two or four to one or five, what well, can't be five to zero if they're tied, then that team is the winner. So Oklahoma State is the winner, even though their sixth man was behind Iowa State's. To me, this makes no sense. Like another sport, by encouraging the sixth runner, you're giving them a reason to run if you're not outside the top five. So please change that official. Totally agree, Robert. I, I have nothing else to add. You're right. But yes, the I, I guess my, my, my big – the ACC is, is obviously the best conference that, that had a meet last weekend. And what I noticed on the men's side was the Notre Dame men dominated. But more importantly, Yerda Goose, the miler, dominated the conference meet, won by a big margin. And I said on this very podcast a few weeks ago, maybe it was a few months ago, that he would make the Olympic team in the 1500. Hopefully the coaching staff realizes what a talent he is and is going to prep him for the Olympic Games in 2021. I mean, I don't see how him winning a cross-country race really furthers that argument at all. This is an 8K cross-country. They're going to be having the Olympic trials. Last time I checked, it's a 1,500-meter race on the track. It's a good sign. I mean, look, I'm under no, you know... False illusions here. Obviously, Yard Nagus is a big time talent. Like, he could make an Olympic team at some point. He could make it next year. But you called him a lock for the Olympic team. And again, I'm just going to further my f- point from before. Josh Thompson, Craig Engels, and Matthew Sensowitz, I'd rank all of them ahead of him right now based on what we know. And it would have been nice if we had a 2020 outdoor season. Maybe Nagus repeats as NCAA 1500 champ, suddenly starts building some momentum. If you're the NCAA champ going into the trials during Olympic year, usually you've got a pretty good shot at making the team. I, I think it's certainly possible, but without having that outdoor season, it's kind of hard to sort of project. Whereas we did have an, you know, we've got a track record of pros for Angles and Centro. And, in, you know, Josh Thompson looked very good indoors. He won the USA indoor title. He looked great at the end of last season outdoors, too. And of course, saying he's a lock, I mean, that's just a little hyperbole. In the era of Trump, which appears to be limited, starting January is the 20th, all exaggerations will officially be over. You'll have to, Robert, you'll have to tone it down a bit. The other thing that struck me about this conference action was some of the women's results. I mean, Arkansas, you, 
you know, they won the SEC women with 41 points. Alabama was second with 57. To me, I mean, Arkansas is the reigning champions at the NCAA level. But to me, that wasn't that impressive. If you look at the ACC results, um, NC State, which is a team that many people think could win it in the winter, they won with 47 points. Georgia Tech at 99. The ACC women's meet is way more competitive. So scoring 47 at the ACC to me is much more impressive than scoring 41 at the um, SECs. Now, there's been a thread on this on, on Let's Run about like which team is most vulnerable. I do think both teams showed some vulnerability. I mean, NC State's fourth and fifth runners were only 16th and 20th, which might make you a little bit worried at NCAAs. But remember, they've got Caitlin Tui, they've got Starliper sitting out, these superstar freshmen. So if they can get them healthy, I think that they're going to have a real good shot at the NCAA title in the winter, assuming we actually run that race. Yeah, I I mean, I looked at the SEC results, and I just, I mean, Arkansas, I'm actually frankly surprised how good they've been this year, given how much talent they graduated last year. Like, many of their top, they had, um, you know, I think they had two women in the top five, Taylor Werner and Werner and uh, Katie Izzo at NCAAs last year. They're both out of eligibility in cross country. So, they, and they, you know, if you look at the SEC results last year, they scored 21. This year, they scored 41. I mean, that's a significant step back. They still won, but I don't know. I, I'd sort of, I might give NC State the edge here just because, you know, if you do get Tui and Starlipper back healthy, I think that puts them over the top, but it's going to be a good battle. Now, I know we have a number of NCA coaches that listen to this podcast. NCA administrators, coaches, if you're listening, when you do pick the teams to go to NCAs, you need to factor in who ran at this meet and who didn't. If teams don't have individuals that they're overseas or whatever, that has to be considered. I mean, when they're doing the college football playoff, I assume they'll factor in the fact that Trevor Lawrence isn't going to be playing quarterback this weekend. I mean, a loss should still be a loss, but at some level, if it was five months ago and it wasn't a full team – but, you know, I, I think it's going to be a little bit messy. I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, Robert. I mean... Well, then, what, otherwise, what's the point? Right, you lose, you lose. I, the, it's just You need to base John, it on results. They started the season. The kids came back to campus, had no idea if there was going to be a season. And then they said, oh, yeah, we're going to restart cross-country. So it's not like a fair thing. It's it, it's a special year, and we need to think about the whole thing. So. I, gr- I agree that that's, it's not ideal, that they the timeline they announced it. And the guy, I think the specific example we're going with is John Hayes we had, at Wake Forest. Who actually, Wake Forest, they I mean, they ran great even without some of their top guys in Europe and Australia. They got third at the ACC meet behind Notre Dame and, and NC State. They, Virginia, I was surprised, only got fourth in that meet. They had been running pretty well earlier in the year. But the thing is, like, I don't know. I just don't like projecting, oh, this, like, because also look at this meet. Sometimes, even if you have your top guys, they have a bad day. Wake Forest top guy the whole season had been Jack Tiernan. He was only their fifth guy at this meet. So, I don't. I like going with the results that we have on paper rather than just sort of projecting. I guess you're right. I'm you look at corrected. Wake for you know there will be opportunities in the winter. We hope for you know because we're going to have conference meets for the meets that didn't have conference meets this fall. But there should also be some invitationals or smaller dual meets. Hope I mean, it's unfortunate that this isn't going to be the the usual system we use, which I think is pretty great in terms of selecting the best teams for nationals, but. Let's hope this is just a one-year blip. It's a strange year, and then we move back, and it's normal again in 2021 in the fall. And while we're talking about NCAA cross country, coming up soon, we're going to have the unofficial NCAA D2 meet. Does anyone know the date of this meet? Because I, I want to give a major shout-out 
to the D2 coaches and everybody. Because, guys, they postponed the D1 cross-country meet. People don't realize, my people don't, may not realize this, the D2 meet was just canceled. I mean, they never postponed it. They just said, we're not running fall sports. It's done. So the coaches have gotten together. There's a ton of D2 schools that are back. Way more D2 schools, I think, are running than D1. And they are putting on their own Division II. It's unofficial meet, but I think the big players are going. Um, and that's coming up soon. I've been uh, emailing with the Colorado Springs coach about it. And it's, it's pretty fascinating, like, how these do two people are – they just moved on and, you know, have been able to do it with a lot less resources than the D1 schools and have a lot of people back competing in cross country. One more thing about collegiate running here, Robert. You mentioned Japanese super shoes, and I think this relates to the results of the National University Ekaden. Do we have a second Rojo's rant? On this topic? We need some intro music for Rojo's rant, especially now that we're sort of entering the dark winter season. I think it would spice things up a bit. But Rojo, what do you got for us? Sorry, guys. I was deciding whether I wanted to read the email from Mark Mitch, the Colorado Springs coach, but he just, it was amazing. Um, the, 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 you know, he gave me, sent me a long email about how D2 is not relying on football and basketball money, so they're just going about their world. The NCAA doesn't do a lot for them, so they put on this meet. So shout out to them. But yes, I have a second rant. And again, it's like earlier I ranted about Rupp in this half marathon. I actually shouldn't be, have been upset because to me, I wanted Ryan Hall's record to stand. 59-43 in the old shoes is quite impressive. 59-43 um, in, in the new shoes you know, wouldn't be nearly as impressive. So... You know, and I was looking at this in terms of last weekend in Japan, the National University Ekaden Championships were held for the 52nd time. And the results in race weekly caught my eyes. The top five teams all broke the old course record by a ton. I mean, the fifth team ran two minutes slower than the first team, five hours, 13 minutes versus five hours, 11 minutes. And yet they're all course record holders. So I, I doubt that there was all five of the greatest teams in Japanese history. It's all five teams just wearing the super shoes. And what was really crazy was the opening leg. The opening leg, the top nine individuals all broke set a course record on the 9.5 kilometer ride. Give me a break. Like the, the, if everybody sets a fast time, it's just the shoes. What is a great time is no longer really meaningful historically. And that was a big part about running. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we've been banging this drum for a while now, and you just, we're going to have to wait until the times are sort of recalibrated. And then after a while, hopefully, you would think the technology, I mean, maybe it still gets even better, but I think it's probably about as good as it's going to be for a while now that they've introduced these limitations. And, you know, eventually we might be able to re recalibrate. But Reed Coolsat, also the Canadian marathoner, a few weeks ago, he had some Twitter thread where he basically compared the, 100th best marathon time in the world and the 300th best and the improvements were stark and you just have to realize if you were a 211 marathoner in 2015 you're probably now a 209 marathoner in 2020 okay instead of talking about cheater shoes can we talk about some possible real cheating Taufik McCluthy, the 2012 Olympic 1500 meter champions in some hot water in France. We may have even mentioned this last podcast, but a bag with alleged doping paraphernalia was found at the French training camp, and it's his bag. And 
perhaps I should know a little more exactly what was in it. I'll link to some photos, but I don't translate France, French. But allegations are there's doping materials in the bag, so he's going to be in some hot water. Who knows what's going to ha- happen to it? But then it came out this week that the bag was found by fellow French runner Jimmy Gressier, who was at the Olympic training camp and decided to go through McCoofy's bag. And lo and behold, what does he find? But um, at least syringes and some other stuff. I don't know what the actual materials were. So, guys, we're very anti-doping here, but what do you guys think about this? Oh, wait, I have to say, Gressier says, oh, I wasn't actually just snooping in someone's bag. I was looking to see if he had the new super shoes. So this is actually related to super shoes. Um, well, I guess he is admitting to snooping through the bag, but he's like, I wasn't really violating his privacy. I was just seeing if he had super shoes. Oh, once I found, discovered he had doping paraphernalia, I had to turn him in. So it's just kind of a crazy story, but... Yeah, I I don't totally I don't endorse going through other people's personal effects, but I also think I'm curious. Like I don't know if McCluffy, like if I was someone who's skeptical of athletes, who's very you know anti-doping, and I saw Talfeet McCluffy's bag just lying around, I would want to know what's in it because I would kind of you know there have been suspicions and rumors about this guy circulating circulating around for years and. I think if he came out and just said, I wanted to know what was in his bag, I was suspicious this guy's a doper, and then he found doping stuff in there, I, I think that's a fu- that story, you know, again, I'm not endorsing going through people's bags, but I think a lot of people, including myself, could understand him doing that. This whole thing's interesting because Gressier on Instagram, I mean, this is a translation, sort of admits to, you know, doing something that's wrong. He says... Because in the story, it seems that I am the bad guy when the only thing I did that was not correct was to have searched a bag that was not mine. So he acknowledges that. But then he goes on to say, you know, once I did that, I did a good deed. I tried to make sport as clean as possible by clearing all the cheaters. I think it's good to open your mouth and not be afraid to say things. Cheaters should be on their farms or their homes, not on the slopes, is my point of view. And I agree with that, you know, but it the anti-doping, it'll be interesting. I assume this will hold up and he could be, be sanctioned for this or at least in the court of public opinion. Maybe it's going to end up sort of like Trump's tax returns or something. But I don't know. If you like busted in someone's house and illegally like went in their house and like all oh, this doping shit's in there, like at some point, right, maybe you'd say, oh, we can't use this information. But I don't want cheats in the sport. And looking in a bag in a communal space is, I think, a, a, a less of a violation than a, a lot of things in terms of privacy so yeah how about if you're doping don't first of all don't dope and then don't bring it to a training center where you know there are going to be other athletes how about that well maybe this is an alberto situation it's just andro gel that's for personal use or something like that or maybe these are legal supplements no that is that is possible i just don't you know the one thing is it's kind of unclear exactly what supplements were found you know what how illegal this stuff is well, it reminds me of John Otten. We still don't know what was found there. Supposedly, they found EPO there, Robert. We do know that. We don't know that. It was we do said that. Then why wasn't someone sanctioned? It's a good. It's a great question. I mean, Robert's always talking about his French friend. Robert, we'll post the link also to the photos. There's a, a photo of some of the the substances found with the French language on the box. We need a translation. So, a French viewer or Robert's French friend, please translate. Thank you. 
Speaking of friends, I have a new virtual friend. Last week on this show, I asked anyone who living in Africa to please contact me. I wanted to know, like, why do all these, you know, you hear about a runner and they're on the police force in Kenya or Uganda? And John actually made a great point. He said, well, we have Americans running for the WCAP in America for the Army. So, um, you know, I hadn't thought about that. But um, a guy who big fan of the podcast has written in. I don't know if he wants his name written. So I'll say here he is. Hello, let's run. My name is Blank. I'm a big fan of the podcast and would like to shed some light perhaps on the situation in Uganda and your recent question about the police. It's a little bit long-winded. I have a unique point of view, so I wanted to contact you. I'm half Ugandan and half Swiss. I'm culturally a foreigner here and can afford to say things that a coach, athlete or coach can't say. Two years ago, I got involved in the athletic scene here by trying to support a male and female sprinter on the national team. The young man is the 100-meter national record holder, and the young lady got a scholarship to the States. What did I do? I simply got them adequate foot, footwear, gym membership, supplements. That's all. They have absolutely nothing. And I'm talking about national athletes, national level athletes, no diet plans. They don't even have sprint spikes, no facilities, one bus to track far from everything. So all the athletes have to sign with the police or with the prison system. They are all officers or wardens. The reasons behind this are numerous. The force allows them to train without having to appear for day-to-day police duties. All right, here it is, guys. Their pay ranges from blank to blank U.S. dollars for the vast majority who are just officers. Please give me your prediction. This is a monthly pay. Monthly pay. I'll say 100 to $200. I'm going to go 30 to $60. No, actually $1,000 a year is probably pretty good. I'm going to go 20 to $40. Wow. Jonathan Galt has nailed it. It's between 100 to 140 U.S. dollars. And then he writes, can you imagine living on that? He says food is cheap over there, but like everything else is like, he says the shoes later on in the email cost more than they do here. Like running shoes would cost more than a hundred dollars. Um, now he said for an athlete who's promoted like Joshua, I would speculate that he makes between four and five hundred dollars a month from the police. Um, but he's, then he goes on to say really that the country has absolutely nothing for his sprinters. Um, they just bought their first timing system last year and they haven't figured out how to use it yet. We time national time trials with a, with, an or- with a mechanism used by a German enthusiasm that is not connected to blocks and works about 60% of the time. There's literally nothing to develop or sprinter here, and he sent his athlete to um, Kenya to train. So he thinks there's untapped potential in the sprints in Uganda. I want to make a correction for the record. I'm a little tired. In doing my calculations, there is multiplying by 30 instead of 12. So I was thinking to make about 1000 bucks a year, which looks about right. Okay. But this email, we were emailing back and forth. And I eventually discovered breaking, breaking news, John, involving U.S. politics, U.S. history. I did not know this. Are you ready? Lay it on me. America, woke Americans, please, I hope you're sitting down. We have not elected our first black president. This is fascinating to me. This guy, so I I was writing him. I said, hey, like you're half Swiss, you're half... Ugandan, like, are you black? Are you white? He says, my dad is is Swiss. He's white. My mom is Ugandan. She's black. I'm mixed. But here, I'm considered white. Isn't that fascinating? In the States, you'd call me black, as you would in Europe. But in Uganda, this guy's considered white. So it's kind of weird. Like, I guess in America, they used to have that racist rule, the one-drop rule, and you were black. I guess in Africa, they have the one-drop rule, and you're white. You learn something new every day. I'm not really saying Barack Obama isn't black, 
but I'm just saying it's interesting how it's, how it's considered. I, mean, I wonder if it's, if it's the skin color because you know in Uganda the blacks are, are most of them are, are darker or pretty dark black, so it's more obvious if you're mixed race than sort of maybe in America where there's a lot of mixing going on. Well, we're not. Robert just used the word the blacks. That's the term that I think Trump's used. Probably not going to be hearing that much too much in the future. <laughs> I guess our president has made his influence on people. All right, we're getting a little off the rails here. Can we? Yeah, but what do you guys think? Maybe we should start sponsoring like the Ugandan Sprint Team. It only costs a couple hundred bucks a week, a month. We could roll it up. They only have one. Tr- they, you know, they only have one taught and track in the whole country. Well, that's what he's well, taught. Four hundred meter track. That's what Joshua Chep, the guy. That's what his agent told me when I was writing a story on him earlier this year. All right, let's talk about a sprinter who we do who does have access to a good training facility. That's Michael Norman. And he gave a very interesting interview to Dragonfield News last week. He told them if he wins the 400 at the Olympics next year, he is, quote, for sure running the 100 in 2022. And I found this very interesting. Obviously, he is talented in the 100. He ran 986 this year, and that was his first 100 for four years. What? He, but he's also, you know, one of the fastest 400-meter runners in history. He's run 43-45. I think he would have been the favorite to win gold Last year, if he was fully healthy, but, you know, then Stephen Gardner won it. There's this decent competition in the 100, I mean, in the 400. What do you guys make of this, of his potential decision to switch down to the 100? It proves the point that I've always said, that everybody would be a 100-meter runner if they could. Distance runners are like, oh, I love distance running. I'm like, don't lie to me. Yeah, you become a runner, you get the runners high, but if you could sprint in the 100, you'd run the 100. I mean, that's just a fact. It's the premier event in track and field, the men's 100 meters. I agree, Robert. I, I certainly would have run the hundred if I was if I was good enough for it. But interest, it's just interesting because with Coleman, like with Coleman gone, we're debating. You know, who? I mean, Coleman's ban actually expire. It expires in May twenty twenty two. So he'd be back by the time Norman would be going to the hundred. But Norman's PR is the same as Noah Lyles. They've both run nine eighty six. Like it would be very interesting if Michael Norman decided to run the. Uh, the 100 next year, he might have a shot to win the whole Olympics, which is pretty crazy. I, I'm trying to think of a guy with that kind of 100, 400 talent. The last one, the guy who comes to mind for me is Xavier Carter, who won the 100 and the 400 for LSU at NCAAs back in 2006. He ran 10 flat in the 100, 1963 in the 200, 44-53 in the 400. Wade Van Niekerk's also runs sub-10 in the 100, but he's not at... Uh, 986. But also the other thing, Xavier Carter. All right, trivia question for you guys. Xavier Carter, how old is he right now? I was just wondering what the hell happened to Xavier Carter. You said 2006. That's 14. Wow, he's up there, John. He's got to be 35 years old. He's 34. He is almost four years younger than Justin Gatlin, which is mind-blowing to me because Xavier Carter, I vaguely remember him like following sports growing up that he was a multi-sport athlete, but he, he was out of the sport by the time I started following track and field. He's only 34 still. It's pretty crazy. I think he's younger than, is he younger than Bolt? Uh, he's one year older than Bolt. Yeah. So last week I asked people from Kenya, I mean, Uganda to contact me if they knew anything this week. I'm asking anyone who knows what Xavier Carter is up to. Please email me, Robert at let's or email the show pod at let's and if you want to support the show and want to support independent journalism, please sign up for our 
Supporters Club for only 30 cents a day. You can get great shoe discounts, support the site, and so much more. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, actually, speak, let's stay with the 100 for a second because we got a topic here. You know, Someone wrote, I think, Robert, I'm assuming here you were kind of curious. You wanted to add some stuff to Coleman about how much money he's losing. Can you expand if this is your train of thought? Well, last week we talked about what an unprofessional hack and idiot that Christian Coleman was, and he didn't take this doping test seriously. And I actually, again, I still have some sympathy for him because, again, I think that, like, justice should be blind. You should treat – do the test the same every time. You don't try to – you don't not call him on the third time because you think he's guilty and you want to catch him. But we didn't talk about how much money do you think he lost. As the Olympic 100-meter champion, oh, my God, he could make millions of dollars – and instead, now his contract is probably getting paid nothing and will be reduced for two years. I mean, it's got to be astronomical. I mean, is it, is it seven figures? I feel like it could be in the seven figures. If you're the Olympic 100-meter champion, you probably get a very nice bonus uh, from Nike. And I think he's probably making... And then that rolls over as well. Plus, think this is about lifetime earning potential. If you can say you are the Olympic 100-meter champion... You'll always be the Olympic 100-meter champion, you know, for the 2021 Olympic 100-meter champion. That's something you can always use at speaking engagements or any sort of that stuff down the line. I would have to guess it's over seven figures, assuming, you know, he actually did win gold next year, which he was favorite to do. I'm reading about Xavier Carter. I was doing a little Googling. He was the 100 and 400-meter champ as a sophomore in college. Yeah, because he turned 20 in December of 1985. NCAAs were in in June 2006. So, yes, sophomore year. Wow, that's just crazy. I mean, he was one of the greatest talents and sort of sad it didn't pan out for him. Reading a thread on TigerDroppings.com, which is an LSU fan forum, and people were talking about how, you know, this guy had a shitload of money for a 20-year-old and was like, I think he was a football player at LSU too. Come back, was partying. I think it sort of just got ahead of him. Um, he got arrested in 2008. So who knows? Hopefully he's doing all right. It says, you know, Wikipedia says he had a second kid in 2014. So hopefully, you know, he's adjusted to the non track world, but crazy that he's so much younger than Justin Gallon. Yeah. I mean, he ran 1963. His best race of his career was 1963 in Lausanne in the summer of 2006. And I'm just going to read you the guy, the results of that race. First place, Xavier Carter, 1963. Second place, Tyson Gay, who would win the world championships in the 100 and 200 next year, 1970. Third place, Usain Bolt, 1988. And this was a race where Carter was 20 years old, Usain Bolt was 19. I'm not saying he was going to be, you know, Usain Bolt level in the 100-200, but this guy was a major, major talent, and it's kind of a shame we never really saw what it could come to fruition as. Speaking of people who have been in trouble with the law, did you guys see the disturbing story out of Kenya? Police are looking for Olympic steeplechase champ Conceslus Kipruto. I did see it. I'm still waiting for exact clarification on what's going on. The the word that they use in these reports is that he defiled a girl, which I found like does this mean he they're saying he raped her? 
It was supposed to be a Form 2 girl. It's not really... Like, they're saying she's a teenager, but I don't know how old she is or what the age of consent is, if this is, like, statutory rape. I'm just kind of confused. I don't want to sort of pass judgment until I know more details of what's going on. Only research I have on this is... I've read a couple of articles, and this is from the Let's Run.com message board. First, they say Form 2 is, like, essentially sophomore year of high school if you're an American, so maybe 15 or 16 years old. They say the age of consent in Kenya is officially 18, but then other people point out that I think the World Bank stats are that 39% of Kenyan women have a kid between ages 15 and, I think, 19. So, anyway, it's just anytime the police are looking for you. It's not good. Anything involving a young girl, it's not good, regardless of this being one of the greatest steeplechasers ever. Well, this is a weird story. I don't really want to talk about it. I don't understand what I'm going to gain from talking about this. But I did see on the message board, John, that someone thought that defiled did not mean non-consensual. It's just the type of term that a family would use. They said it wouldn't be that uncommon for a you know mid-20s person with money to be with a younger woman in Kenya. But that would be that would certainly be the term that a family might use if they were trying to get some sort of money out of him. I'm not saying that's what's happening. Can we move on to another more pleasant topic? Yeah, one thing I wanted to mention before we go, possible source of optimism here. World Athletics has come out and they've given the dates for the World Athletics Indoor Tour next year. So it begins on January 29th in Karlsruhe, Germany. Then you've got the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix, February 6th in Boston, and the Milrose Games has been added to the World Athletics Indoor Tour. That's on February 13th. So are you guys excited about this? Do you, uh, I, I view this, I'm like, look, indoor track, I still kind of view it as like, I, I don't in the United States at least, I don't know if we're going to have these meets, if they're going to happen, but they do have dates now. So are you excited about this or is it too early for you? Well, I'm excited, A, that the Milrose Games is finally part of the World Indoor Tour. I've always sort of made fun of Milrose for not being part of this premier track and field tour. So A, I'm excited about that. And B, John, we talked about this in the podcast last week. I didn't really chime in, but we can have these meets if we want to. It's just a matter of how much risk you want to have. I mean, remember in the spring, we were shutting down the entire country when there was like 20 cases, you know, 200 cases of COVID or something. Now we're actually setting records highs of COVID in terms of actual cases, but yet we're having football games with 25,000 fans in the stands. I guess some people might say those two things are correlated, but I don't think it's going to be a problem to hold a track meet. So the issue is, are we going to have a track meet with fans in the stands? And the nice thing about indoors is these events aren't as dependent on spectator money as maybe say a major marathon is so i'm really hopeful that we can have some indoor track and field otherwise it's going to be a long haul what are we going to just wait till the olympics and then what are the odds if we don't have indoors are we really going to have the olympics that's the big question robert is are the you know are they going to be the organizers and the sponsors going to be okay putting money into this thing and support it because i agree i think if you get the backing of sponsors and the organizers they can hold these meets without fans. You put them on TV and it works. But that's a question. You know, are they going to be losing money on this thing? Are they going to be willing to to take the risk, you know, if they're going to lose money on it? Right. And then when we do have the Olympics, which I think we 100% should have, but I'm not convinced it's going to 100% happen. But to me, like, look, we're going to have cases. There'll probably even be positives at the Olympics and you don't shut it down. We've just done an entire Major League Baseball season where they didn't quarantine the whole teams. Somehow they got through that. None of these healthy athletes have thankfully died and 
I don't know. A young, healthy person gets sick. It's bad. We don't want it to spread even more. But at some level, like it's like, what level of risk are you willing to happen? And we're seeing that, John, actually in the Boston thing with the mask. Like to me, this rule is insane. And one of the reasons, honestly, this is, sounds weird. The reason why Trump, I think, outperformed the polls is, John, people are getting tired of this COVID thing. Like, yes, it's serious. But for some people, like, okay, I don't want to have to wear a mask in my backyard when no one's within 500 yards of me. No one's making you people do that. You just said you had to wear it outside at all times. I think that means like outside of your house. If you're on your property, I don't think they're going to be enforcing it. But John, the point stands. If I'm in the woods, if I'm in the woods somewhere sure. hiking, sure. and no one's around me, I'm supposed to wear a mask. It's just a stupid law. And also coming back to like how much risks do people want to take? And I, I guess maybe this you could say this is a good thing for federalism or a bad thing, but like 25,000 people can go to a Cowboys game and wear a mask. You're supposed to wear a mask at the game, but in Boston, you can't go outside and exercise with a mask, even if you're not near anyone. It just it doesn't square. And also, this disease for people under the age of 60 is, for most, in the vast, vast, vast majority, very benign. Yes, there's serious cases, blah, blah, blah. But like, Well, measures- we don't know the the long-term health effects of some of this stuff. Well, I will admit like that you are, most people under 60 do recover, but there are underlying health conditions that might contribute to. I don't think we have the long-term research on that yet. Fine. One out of 100? I, I don't know what that number is. I don't want to speculate. I'm not a doctor. Right. But it's I, I think I would say, oh, that's very low. One out of 100 has a long-term risk. Let's carry on. You might say, oh, my God, that's terrible. Well, just- we don't know that one out of 100 is the number, though, so I don't even want to go down this road. But yeah, but you threw it out there like we need to freak out about it or be worried about it. I just think it's a think different it's something thing. something to, to, be, to be concerned about, yes. And also, John, we didn't touch on this, but the New England Patriots struggling – a lot you were going to have to – I mean, thank God this election turned around for you because this could have been a really dark week. But can you play football without a mask? Can you? Maybe your job, if your job entails it, or do the face mask count? I assume the Patriots will get an ex- – I think they have exemptions for some people. I assume the Patriots will get an exemption, but that is kind of interesting Like, because they're certainly – it, yeah, it's it's like hard to square that. They're certainly not social distancing. They're being in very close contact with, in a large groups. Like they've banned large group gatherings – I think over 25 people outdoors in the United States. Sorry, in Massachusetts. Obviously, there are more than 25 people at a football stadium during a game. So um, maybe they're trying to kick the Patriots out of New England since they're a losing team this year. It's kind of like the the Toronto Blue Jays. They weren't allowed to play in Toronto this year. They had to go play somewhere else. So Oakland Patriots. Who else needs a team in the in football? St. Louis Patriots. They tried to move the team to St. Louis actually back in the 90s. Didn't happen. All right, people. If the election doesn't go your way, or if it did go your way, congratulations. Either way, let's be Americans if you're an American and support each other. Speaking of supporting Americans and being a patriot, up next, we have a cool interview with Michael Smith, the director in track and field at Army. He's putting on what we're calling the cross-country meet of the year. It's one week from today. Mike's going to talk about how this meet came about. It's the Army, Navy, Air Force tri-meet. All right, now we're joined by Mike Smith, the director of track and field and cross country at West Point. That's Army for those of you that don't know. And we're really excited to have him on because he has created a meet that we're calling the cross country meet of the year. It's going to take place a week from today, next Wednesday. That's Veterans Day. It's going to happen at West Point on the plane. That's hollowed ground there. 
the first time in nearly a hundred years there's going to be a sporting competition on the plane, and it's going to be a tri meet between Army, Navy, and Air Force, and it's going to be spectacular. The entire thing will be spectators can watch it from start to finish because it's a half mile long. They're not going to run off to the woods and, and be lost. They're going to be visible for fans promoting the sport, and also worldwide you can watch it on ESPN Plus. We can't wait for this event, Mike. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. We're so excited. Tell us about how this this meet came into existence, whose idea it was, how long have you been planning on it, just how, how did it come about? Well, th- thanks for, for having me on. Uh, I'm glad we get to talk about this because I, I've felt uh, – I feel like that this is a special event. And the idea came to me in the summer. The, the pandemic is responsible for the idea. I mean, normally, the calendar does not permit us – to have an event like this, uh, because we have our Army Navy dual meet in mid October, then we have our conference championship, and then we have the regional championship. But I suppose I could make a case to opt out of any one of those things, but it wouldn't it wouldn't be something that I think would go over very well. So the calendar really sets up for us in November uh, when the pandemic hit. We we really had nothing, so we had to figure out what we would do to keep our kids engaged and to provide certainty for them so that they had some sense of normal. And the idea that Navy and an Army, both in the Patriot League, would still push on once the Patriot League canceled fall sports, our institutions said absolutely we're going to push forward with fall sports because of the unique mission that we have here. And, and the Patriot League understood that. So I knew at least that Navy would, would push ahead. And then I called Air Force. And at that time, this is late summer, I started talking to Ryan out there at Air Force. And, and he indicated that the Mountain West was uh, debating whether or not to push forward. And I floated the idea to him. And we tossed around a number of dates. And if the regional meet and the NCA were going to happen, we, we still were trying to find a window to make this happen. Uh, and then shortly after our discussion started, Air Force and the Mountain West shut down. And at that point, it, it really opened up the calendar and Air Force jumped on the opportunity. And this will be their only meet. So uh, it worked out for all three that we can do it. And I think it's it's really a unique event on so many. So you got the three natural rivals together, which is going to be great for the fans. I mean, I think everybody in the world can understand Army, Navy, and Air Force, but it's so much more than that. And that, and this is one of the things that I think is so cool is you're really worried about presenting the sport to the fans and the public at large. So you've got, you've designed this course that's on the plane where spectators apparently can see the whole thing from start to finish, right? That's absolutely right. So was that a key part to you? How, how did you come up with that idea? You know, have you always been thinking about presenting the sport to the public at large? Just explain that a little bit. Sure. That, that's all true. Yeah. So I've always felt like we shortchange ourselves as a sport when we run off into the woods and then we come out, out of the woods and we finish. And I'm a coach, so there's still a winner and a loser when we do that. And kids still hit times and the sport still happens. And there's an aesthetic quality that we all as runners, as former runners, as current runners appreciate when you go off to some of those courses and the Van Cortland parks of the world and places where you're off on those trails. But I think a spectator doesn't really get to appreciate the sport and you miss the nuance of it and the compelling drama that happens 
is all taking place in some cases out of view. And when I got here to West Point seven years ago, I saw the plane as, wow, that's that would be an opportunity to put a meet on. And I, I just never have had the right opportunity. It's not something that it's somebody's front yard. It's it's one of the most expensive lawns in the United States. It's it's historic. I've never been on it. So here we are talking about this meet and I still have not set foot on it. So the first time I set foot on it in seven years will be next week when we set up the course. Uh, that's that's what we're talking about in terms of significance. Uh, but to, to finish the, the point there, th this is an event where it's right there in front of you. And I felt like, why not? Like, why not bring the sport to the forefront and, and let's see what it looks like. And I know horse tracks have, have had some races uh, around. And I, I think there was a USA meet a number of years ago that was held in, in a horse track, maybe in New Jersey somewhere. But we're going to do it on the plains. So you'll have the, the background will be the buildings of the United States Military Academy, the statues. It's just an iconic setting. And the Corps cadets, if, if, if we can get them all around the perimeter, you'll have this natural fan base there. And you'll see every step of it. And I thought we could have the race anywhere. We could get the three schools together and have a race anywhere. But why not do it in this kind of setting? And then why not do it on Veterans Day and bring more attention to Veterans Day? So all those things played into it. And the calendar worked out. And right now, it looks like we're going to have a pretty special event. You'll be on a, a patch of grass that people like U.S. Grant have walked on. I mean, it's just a, a very special environment. That's how historic and unique this is. It's it's not something where you can just set up your lawn chair and have a picnic. It's it's hallowed ground. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. Are the students allowed to walk on it, or what, do they have to walk on paths? Like, what's the status of it at West Point? There's a sign that says "Keep off the grass." You, at, at this place, you don't ignore that sign, <laughs> so you stay off the grass. Uh, during, during Beast in the summer, they'll do some, uh, they'll let kids march on there. During parades, they'll march on there. That's what it's for. It's for, it's for reviews before football games. So typically around nine o'clock on the day of a game, there'll be a parade where the Corps of Cadets goes out and, and is marching, uh, in drill and formation. And the leadership of the institution will review them. That's what it's for. And that happens before football games and big events. So, Mike, the fact that you're having it on the plane sounds pretty amazing. I, I know, like, way back in the day, they, they used to play football games, like the Army-Navy game was on the plane, right? Like, when is the last time, do you have any idea, a sporting event was held on this, this amazing piece of property? Well, what, what, what we've been able to figure out is, I, I believe the first event was 1890, on the, uh, a football game on the plane. And then, to the best of our knowledge, the last football game... I think 1923, and, and then Mikey Stadium opened in 1924. I think that's the timeline. So we're talking almost 100 years since there's been uh, an event like this, a, a significant sporting event on the plane. So typically it's, it's reserved for reviews of the Corps of Cadets. They, they parade out there, they, which is marching. And that's typically what the plane is for. It's not something where you set up and... Uh, have a picnic or uh, watch fireworks or anything like that. And I may have mentioned before, I've, I still haven't set foot on the plane. So 
I'm looking forward to getting out there and feeling the grass and underneath my feet and uh, checking out the the terrain. But it's it's sacred ground. It's hallowed ground. It's expensive ground, uh, and it's like any lawn that you put a lot of money into. You want it to you want to preserve the appearance of it. So it's a big deal that we're getting out there. And what can we look for in terms of spectators? I mean, you're trying to make this spectator friendly. The whole thing's going to be in ESPN Plus, but I imagine that Army is pretty much shut down because of COVID-19. So will the other, you know, cadets be there to watch? Like, What, what type of crowd are you expecting? So the the cadets are the, – the plane is right right in the center of the campus. So it, there could be cadets in their barracks, which are the dorms, that could look out their window of their room and watch the race. There could be cadets walking to go get uh, uh, some food at at Grant Hall, which, which is like a, a little bar and grill area and snack bar, and they could watch the race. They could see it. It'll be right there in front of them. You could be walking to your car in a parking lot, and you'll go right by the event. So we anticipate that there'll be a number of cadets. There are 4,400 that are here. They they can come out and watch all of it. They could pass by and watch some of it. And we're hopeful that if the weather's good, that we'll get almost all of them or a large portion of them out there. It really just depends on what each cadet wants to do. It's not required for them to watch, but I imagine there'll be quite a few of them out there. So can you try to tell our, you know, the, the listeners how important sort of the rivalry between, I mean, historically it's just army and Navy, but when I was talking to you last week, I asked you, hey, would you rather win the Army-Navy meet or the conference meet? And you sort of didn't really hesitate and said Army-Navy. Um, how big of a deal is that and, and, and <laughs> for you as a coach every year? Well, I, I think it's hard to, to understand it unless you're here. And I coached at Kansas State University for 20 years, and that, that's in the Big 12 Conference, which is a pretty strong conference. And the conference meet was – the main focus in getting there and performing and for some schools like Oklahoma state and Iowa state, maybe it was on the way to the NCAA meet, but here the, the army Navy is part of the institutional mission. And when you're, when you're watching, you might see signs that say beat Navy, but there are, there, there's signage all over the campus that says beat Navy. And I'm sure it's the same down in Annapolis. It it's, part of the institutional mission. Winning is an important part of it. And the best way to describe the feeling of what you're doing here is that it's like a, it's like a, a Super Bowl. It's every, every sport at the academy participates in the Army-Navy rivalry. It's not just the football one. That's the one that has the most notoriety. But every coach goes through this. And getting these kids ready for this is is an important part of teaching them how to prepare for competition. And uh, ultimately, this is a measure of how to overcome adversity because it prepares them for the job that they're going to go on and do beyond their their college career. So it's, it's a very important part of the mission. They're here to be students. Uh, they're here to learn how to be leaders, and they're here to, to learn how to win. So we're, we're a part of that mission and we have to take it seriously. And when we do win, the the number of people that pay attention, uh, or or the status of the people that pay attention, would surprise you. We we got a shout out from the the chief of staff of the army, 
for the women's win in the dual meet several weeks ago. And Coach Munkin came down. He's the football coach. Coach Munkin came down and spoke to the women and presented them a, a black flag, which is the opposite of a white flag. A white flag is surrender and a black flag is no surrender. And uh, it's just, it's such a important part of the fabric of the institution that we can't help but prioritize it. And that message is communicated clearly in signage around post, but also when you just look at the mission of inspiring leaders of character and helping kids figure out how to overcome adversity. It's, it's just, it's a pretty important part of what we do here. Uh, Mike, I'm, I'm curious, like how, how do you guys view Air Force? Because, you know, obviously the Army Navy thing is a big deal, but I think you said you haven't competed against Air Force since 1962, to the best of your knowledge, in a cross-country right. race. Do you, how do you view that relationship with between the schools? Well, I'm, I'm excited to put our kids out there and uh, against them, but the calendar and just doesn't open up for us to have a dual meet with them in the months that matter. I, it could happen in, in September, I'm sure. This triangular could maybe happen in September, but you know the nature of collegiate cross country and the system that's in place. Kids want to test themselves against the best in the world, and that's what happens in the NCAA. The best, the best athletes in the world are coming to the NCAA. Our kids want to test themselves at the highest possible levels. So in NCAA cross country, you benefit from competing against more schools, not fewer. So you want to test yourselves at the bigger meets, and we already competed in the duel in mid-October, so our chances to pick up those at-large points really come down to uh, an early October meet. So Air Force would love to compete against us, and we're excited to do this, but I don't know that it's going to be something that could happen again, at least at this time of year, because we're always subject to the current calendar and trying to get ready for the NCAA meet. And how we view them, we view them the way we view Navy. It's somebody that uh, we have to go up there and they're a service academy and we're a service academy and which is the best. This is going to be a commander in chief's trophy type race uh, decided within 20 or 25 minutes uh, for the women and the men. And that's, I think this is probably the only sport that can do that. Yeah, Mike, earlier you're talking about sort of the educational component and and how the, the service academies view the sort of the widely is a key part of their actual mission. Um, and, and I think that you're in a unique spot. I mean, right now, because of COVID-19, a lot of athletic departments are, are having budget cuts. Teams are being cut. Programs are being cut. But it seems like being a coach at, at one of the service academies might be one of the best jobs in America now because you know the teams aren't being cut. And when I was talking to you last week, you know, offline, you said, look, they view sports as a key part of their education. Because we were talking about indoor track. And you said, look, I don't care if the NCAA is having indoor track. We're going to have the Army-Navy indoor meet. We're already planning on that. And it's because my bosses view this as important. This is like the closest dealing with diversity of, a, of an athletic competition is the closest thing these young men and women can get to facing the adversity they might face on a battlefield someday. So can you talk a little bit about how everybody does sports at some level and how, how important it is to you guys? Like how You're one of the few places that has forgot that it's an educational aspect no, that's, of sport. That's absolutely true. So – so whether or not uh, our conference shuts down, both Army and Navy are committed to going forward 
and finding ways to, to make it work. So we will have the Army-Navy indoor meet. That's what they've told me. And uh, we're set to host it this year. And I, I think it's just so important for the kids to figure out ways to overcome. And they're, they're, they're saddled with so much adversity as it is. They, I had two kids yesterday that had three combative fights, and that's like ultimate fighting or MMA fighting. And they, two of the guys, they, they had those fights. That's just part of the deal here. That's figuring out how to take a blow and how to give a blow. And they're saddled with that. And they've got, they've got classes in survival swimming and boxing. And they, they just check off the boxes. They don't come to practice and say, I can't practice today, coach. You know, we talk about what happened and then we go forward, but they're conditioned to handle adversity and division one sports is part of that. It's part of figuring out ways to win and overcoming adversity. So every kid at, at this academy is taking physical education classes like boxing, like combatives, like survival swimming. They can't choose when they're going to get up in the morning. Uh, they can choose when they're going to bed. They're saddled with 18 to 20 hours, uh, credit hours a week, I mean uh, a semester. So their challenge is part of the the, the mission and just watching to see how the kids manage it and overcome it. So that's what this is. Division One sports puts you in a position to evaluate your ability to handle it. And that's the, the most important thing that we do as Division One coaches here is teach these kids how to handle adversity and or overcome it. So Every kid at the academy is doing some level of sport, whether it's club or intramural um, or Division One. And the Division One sports are put into the crucible of competition at the highest possible level. So having the, the Army-Navy dual meet, whether or not indoor is happening around the country, is critical to the mission. And having the Army-Navy outdoor dual meet and the cross-country meet. So if we have one meet, it's going to be that one and figuring out a way for us to, to win it is the job that I have and preparing these kids to, to compete for it, to, to win a, a championship. We treat it like a championship. Yeah. As a former college coach, I'm curious, you know, I, I have always said that if I ever get back to coaching, I'm going back to the Ivy league or, or the, one of the service academies. Cause I, I feel like that's the way it should be done. It's very pure and everything, but I'm wondering what it's like to be on the recruiting trail as a coach. I mean, you really built the program up in the seven years you've been there, but You've got a lot to offer. I mean, you're offering not only a full ride to all of these young men and women, you're also offering them a guaranteed job when they graduate, which is harder and harder to, to come by that type of guarantee. But then on the other hand, there's negatives like, you know, <laughs> even the women are going to learn hand-to-hand comment and be boxing each other at times during, you know, maybe even a few days before the biggest meet of the year. Yeah, that's so, right. <laughs> how, it, it, how different is the recruiting there than, say, at Kansas State? Is it easier because you have so, like, an unlimited scholarships? Is it harder? Talk a little bit about that. Well, it, it's easier to sell all of the things that you mentioned because they're all true. And that rings true for, for a lot of people. But when you get really close to committing to it, that's when that's when kids figure out what they're made of. Because the the moment you get here, our orientation is somebody screaming at you. Whereas when I was at K State, orientation was a little warm and fuzzy. Um, so it's a whole different ball game, and it's about challenge and opportunity. So that's what we're we're selling is you got to be up for the greatest adventure of your life, the most challenging adventure of your life, 
uh, and it's a very mature decision to do that, but it'll lead to opportunities down the road, some of the things that you mentioned. So the recruiting process is far more involved because there's so many hurdles and hoops you have to jump through and over just to get here. You have to meet a physical standard, so they have to pass a, a, a fitness test. You have to meet a medical standard, so a number of things could disqualify you. Being colorblind takes you out. Sleepwalking takes you out. Uh, things you never even thought of will, will just take you out. Uh, so you meet the medical standard, the physical standard, an academic standard, and a character standard. So your pool has to be pretty large to figure out who can meet all those standards. So we cast this huge net, and then it narrows, and then you try and uh, figure out which kids can fit into this place. And it's a special kid that fits, and it's really hard to, to figure out who that kid is in the beginning, and you just have to spend a lot of time getting to know him in order to figure it out. So there's a lot more time on the phone. Uh, you're not you're not really going over to Europe to find a kid and spearfishing. Here you're casting a, a pretty wide net and then trying to figure out who fits the the mold for this place. Yeah, and w w can you give us a quick a preview of what to expect for the meet? I know at Army Navy the women's meet was a two point meet, so that sounds like we could expect some real drama on the women's side. But with with, with Air Force in, I mean, I guess you don't want to. As a coach, you always want to say your team's going to win, but who would you view the favorite of both of these races? Well, I, I guess if there's a home field advantage that we could create, we have created it. This could be the, the best home field advantage that anybody could have. So I like our chances with that. Uh, we have a lot of unknowns because we have our top three in the last race. We're, we're all freshmen, and they're just new to the to the whole thing. But Air Force was eighth on the women's side in the NCAA meet last year. So uh, I got to believe they have some good people coming back. So I, I would say they're pretty good. And, and, you know, Army and Navy have been separated by one or two points the last two years. So I think it'll be tight all the way around. This is Air Force's first race. So maybe there's some rust. I don't know. We'll see. But they, they have to be the favorites based on being eighth at the NCAA meet last year. Army's never had uh, a, a female participant at the Division One NCAA meet. So we're working toward that, but we've never had anyone go or a team go. And on the men's side, might see pretty even teams on the men's side. I think that there's a lot more parity there. Um, we'll, we'll find out for sure when we see what the guys are that they can line up, that Air Force can line up because they haven't raced yet. But the Navy meet, they, they beat us pretty good. But again, we have the home field advantage going here, and I'm hoping my guys step up uh, because we've got some talented guys who are very fit. It, it'll be a really good race, I think, on both sides, especially because you'll see every aspect of it, so you can watch the, the thing unfold. And we'll have digital boards out there uh, picking up splits and picking up team scores at uh, probably almost every mile because they'll cross through the, the split pads. So I think for the fan that doesn't know what's happening, they'll see score updates throughout the race that'll that'll help guide them toward the outcome yeah i think that's really cool i mean when we were talking last week you said you got really tired of being a college coach and on the way home from a big track meet you pull into the you know the rest stop and the court behind the counter says hey how'd you guys do did you win or lose and the kids say uh we didn't keep score or right. <laughs> <laughs> we're not sure we were uh 12th out of 35 teams there'll be no doubt as to who, who, who finished first, who finished second and who finished third uh, next week. So Mike, we really appreciate you setting this up and, 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 you know, 
one of the things that let's run we like to think about is like what about the sport nobody is is, is seems concerned about promoting the sport and, and growing the sport and this sounds like a, a really cool addition to the program well, could i so, add to that but, yeah could, could i add to that sure yeah so part part of the the thought process here is also we have to be relevant and what, what you're describing is true coming back from meets telling the clerk behind the counter that he PR'd or she PR'd doesn't resonate, but winning and losing does. And this is going to bring relevance to the sport because everyone's going to see what it is and, and what it can be. And I think that's the key here is in, in, we're in a tumultuous time where programs are disappearing or they're on edge or there's so much uncertainty. And why not create certainty and why not create relevance uh, and we're fortunate that we have the opportunity to do that, but that's part of what we're doing is we're, we're putting it out there so that everyone can see it, and hopefully that brings more attention to it, and that that helps the sport grow in the sense that you can see how compelling it can be. Instead of they go in the woods and they come out of the woods, here you're going to see every step of the of the race, and I just think that that's a valuable part of it, and it'll resonate because there'll be a win and a, a, a first, second, and a third, and at the end, there's a unique tradition that, that we have where the alma maters are played for each institution, and the kids will all be at attention. And think of the imagery of that with the academy in the background as they all stand at attention, and you play the alma mater for the third-place team, then the second-place team, and then the winning team. So the motto for the teams in this race is going to be sing third because they'll play your alma mater at the end, and that'll be the last song that's played, and you'll know you've won. Yeah, and I think it's great that you guys aren't afraid to have a winner. I mean, so much of society, not everyone's a winner, but, you know, on the battlefield, there's only one winner, and I think that's something that you guys are more focused on than, than most. Well, I guess one last question that I found interesting when we talked, you know, again off air last week, um, you know, obviously today's Wednesday, it's the day after a presidential election. I asked you last week, like, I was wondering, like, what's it like to coach at a college at a service academy. And the reason why I asked you this was because generally, you know, younger people win, tend to be a little bit more liberal and left, but most military people are a little bit right and more conservative. So I said, is there like a big, you know, sort of left right divide on campus? And your answer uh, just really surprised me, but was fascinating. So you said it's not a problem at all. Can you explain why? Well, there's no, the kids, the kids, the soldiers, everyone at the institution, uh, the institution itself is apolitical. So there's no up and down about it. Maybe privately there is, but publicly there's no winning and losing going on. It's We're all responsible to carry forward with whatever the mission is. And the mission is to teach these kids how to, how to manage competition and and training and to be leaders of character and to inspire them to to go forward. So we don't have time to wallow in the wins and losses of of what's going on politically. We we still have a job to do and that applies to the coaches as well. Our our job hasn't changed, the mission doesn't change based on who's at the top. Uh, you just do what you're told and we're told to <laughs> try and win this meet. So that's the mission today, and that's the mission tomorrow, and that'll be the mission next week. Well, great. Good luck, and, and thanks for putting this on, and we're going to look forward to watching it. Thanks for having us on. It's great, great to promote this, and, and I, I hope it goes well.